All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm very happy to welcome on the show the first time, uh, Kasim Hansen. Am I saying your name correctly? Yeah. Okay, awesome. It, it, I, I was going to ask where, it, like, is there some special origin to your, your name? Like, I couldn't decide, is this like uh, Turkish or Scandinavian or how does this name sound exactly? My mom's my mom's side has a Lebanese background, so it's it's Arabic oh. and it comes from there. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool, awesome. So uh, yeah, Kasim is someone that I I actually wanted to have on the show for a long time, but um, yeah, like there's just a lot of things that I, I could have talked about with him potentially, and uh, and also I, I'm just not I guess deeply knowledgeable enough in his field of expertise. So I just I just didn't want to make myself look like a fool uh, by getting him on and then asking potentially silly questions. And today that might end up happening anyway, but uh, we have some important stuff to discuss. So I think it will be educational for everybody. So uh, with that, uh, Kasim, thank you so much for for being on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've actually been looking forward to uh, from getting on. You know, I think you do a wonderful job with your interviews. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, that means a lot coming from you. Um, yeah, so you're you're definitely one of the people that I follow in the field of biomechanics. Uh, not that many people that I was impressed by, and then there there were there there was Doug Brignoli, uh, who I'm I'm just uh, head on recently, and uh, you know you you will you will share your thoughts about his methods. Uh, you were the other one. Um, your stuff were sometimes kind of over my head, so uh, maybe that's why I felt compelled to have uh, Doug on first because um, his way of outlining things was just a lot easier for me to understand. Which, of course, doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's more correct. But um, yeah, so just just kind of in a in a big picture kind of way, when uh, you I don't know if you listened to my podcast uh, specifically. I mean, I know you at least listened into it, but. Um, you know what? What were your initial thoughts when you heard my podcast with him, and when you just like came across, you know, with his content in in general? Yeah. So we've gotten a lot of questions, you know, in terms of you know biomechanics, looking at Doug's content and whether or not we agree with it or whatnot. And I would say, um, on a, like like many people on many topics, on a principle level, there will be things that we agree on. Um, but then sometimes on the application, that's where that's where things diverge. So on the principle level of trying to be more efficient with your exercise selection, like that fits right in line with what we do. Um, but what I would say where we probably disagree with is how Doug is evaluating uh, those exercises. So in terms of the way he's calculating some of the forces in the physics and as well as a different understanding of anatomy and mechanics. So while at a principal level, we might be both kind of pursuing the same goal, uh, I think with our different education backgrounds and practices, we've come to some, we'll say, different conclusions about that, as well as kind of a different perspective of just kind of where this sits in the hierarchy of what's important or how important some of these things are, because it's very easy with, you know, when when, a, when somebody starts starts to learn the physics aspect of wow, I can put numbers to this. And so categorically, I think they mentally like rank it higher in terms of its importance. And it's like, well, this is part of the equation of what we want to do to get a proper stimulus or what makes a good exercise or what is going to get me a good result. Um, but if we, if we rank things artificially high, it can kind of change our perspective and actually make us make some poorer decisions uh, or overcomplicate things, if you will. 
Yeah, so um, we, we are going to get to a couple of the specific claims that Doug makes and, and some of his points, but I guess in a, a general sense, so how much would you agree with the principle and the concept that if we look at most people in the gym that have built good physiques, so I guess most bodybuilders, most just regular gym goers that are serious about this, that they are, if not wasting their time, they are just making their progress so much more inefficient because they're picking movements that they are just, yeah, not efficiently loading the muscles. So they have to make up for that with a lot more intensity, weight, and also volume. So, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that that's what your field is all about, like basically picking efficient exercises. But if we look at sort of the average person who at least knows what they're doing so they're progressively overloading they're training pretty hard and picking movements that are kind of the most traditional bodybuilding exercises like pull downs bench presses and whatever like how far off do you think that is from what would be i guess like optimal from a like a muscle stimulation perspective i think i mean the majority of the industry can definitely stand to improve their education and be more efficient but i think an important perspective is to understand that when we're looking at exercise selection, just like when we're looking at volume and effort or whatever, is there basically is a threshold of good enough. And like once you like once you get to that point and then you combine it with all of the other things, you can get a pretty good result. And the difference between good enough and optimal is not near as much as the difference between something that's really crappy and good enough. So I think a lot of the industry, a lot of people are doing exercises that are good enough, which is why if you combine them with, you know, halfway decent programming and effort and consistency and actually, you know, doing a few things that focus on your recovery, across the board, those people might actually get better results than somebody that is so hyper-focused on choosing the best exercise that they don't put enough effort into it, you know, because either they're so focused on their technique or whatever it may be, or they just simply don't learn enough about managing the other variables that it's like being perfect in one variable of this equation, but having a zero at another portion of the variation completely wipes that out. So mm -hmm. I've, the, the, the thing I try and push on people is, is like, by all means, pursue optimal but don't pursue optimal in one variable at the neglect of other variables because you get essentially like a multiply by zero effect, right? You know, so like the difference between, you know, if we say that like, you know, good enough is here and optimal is here, like the difference between going from good enough to the next thing is probably a bigger jump than going from the second most optimal to the most optimal. We're talking like fractions of a percentage difference once we get to exercises that are just that good. Now, now it becomes more important to look at, are we getting effective reps? Are we managing volume appropriately, right? You know, those, all of those other decisions become a bigger part of the equation as we get closer to optimal and exercise selection. Right, right. Um, so we, so one, one thing that I definitely wanted to ask you about, because this was, you know, as I was digging through Doug's work, and then, you know, like, a lot of the stuff made sense to me, like, okay, so every muscle should have sort of an, an optimal kind of movement pattern, or actually, maybe let's just mm -hmm. start there. Uh, that that's, that's actually one, you know, I was under the impression before I or I dug through his work, no pun intended, dug through Doug's work, that uh, at, like every muscle at least has like two, 
you know, main functions or at least two major, I guess, like movement patterns that that would be good for those. His his point many often is that, no, it's actually like one single movement that is optimal for that muscle. And then just let's pick an exercise which is going to carry out that movement pattern the best. So like, what do you think about that? Yeah, so this is a great example of where we agree in principle and disagree in application. So uh, the idea that there is an optimal movement for a muscle, like that is something that, you know, we actually research in-house. Like I think we're pioneering this field, um, but it's a lot more, we have a lot more options than like say one thing for biceps, right? And so the research that we do looks at finding what a muscle's actual fully lengthened position is, what a muscle's fully shortened position is, and then there's this path of motion that moves between those points, right? And I think, you know, Doug uses the terms anatomical motion, which makes sense as a term and makes sense as a principle, but um, he's not looking at it through near the, the nuance and the level of depth in terms of anatomy and mechanics that we are. So we, I would say, yes, there is an optimal path of motion for the pecs, but it's a different path of motion for the clavicular pec and the sternal pec and the costal pec, and the same thing for the different divisions of the lats. Like, um, you know, in this, this plays true in terms of what we're able to see in our lab, as well as what a lot of people in the applied research have done. Like, for instance, if you want to take, if you want to take this concept and see like, well, how, how detailed it can be, um, is we even had a study out, I think it was early, early last year, uh, early 2020, um, that Chris Bearcat and I reviewed where people are able to hypertrophy the different divisions of the calves, right? Which, you know, the gastroc, you know, just crosses the ankle joint, right? And it doesn't look like it's a muscle that would pull in a, you know, a huge difference in terms of directions, but they were actually able to separate which, uh, which head of the gastroc got more hypertrophy, right? And then they were also able to get like a lesser degree in the individuals, but like to get some. So basically to quick sum the results, they use different foot positions, which loads different parts of the foot. Um, so it's not actually the rotation of the leg. It's where the, where the load is put, pressing through the foot. And the group that did the outside of the foot, they loaded the lateral portion of the gastroc and the glute that load or the group that loaded the medial side of the foot by having the toes out grew more of the medial. And the ones that went straight forward didn't grow as much in an individual division, but they grew more in the non-working division. So they got a more balanced growth, but to a lesser degree. So we know that like, man, even as, even a motion as simple as a calf press, right? Or a calf raise that we have the ability to manipulate the stimulus there, right? And then we're able to replicate that with the research that we do using EMG and MOXIE data, which is looking at blood oxygen uh, in the muscle as well. So mm -hmm. I would say I agree that there is an optimal path of motion. Like if we want to train a muscle, that's what it would be. It would be its actual lengthened position to its actual shortened position, which is not just you know insertion to origin, but that's accounting for all of the structures in between the insertion and the origin and the joint as well, right? When we're designing these motions. But you don't necessarily like, basically it's like, as long as you're close enough, you're gonna get some. And then there'll be a gray area where it's just like, there will be a situation where you have somebody it's like, I don't need the specific division of the pec. I need that one exercise that happens to work as much pec as possible because I only get that one exercise in this program. So how you would use that information is very contextual because you can't just say, well, because there's a best, best path of motion for every muscle division in the body, that therefore I'm gonna do an individual exercise for 
every muscle in the body. It's just not, it's just not practical, right? And it's also, we'll say, maybe not needed depending on where somebody is in their training career because their stimul like their threshold for stimulus is so low that they can afford to do a squat and grow a whole bunch of things simultaneously because the amount of load they're doing, the amount of effort and the volume and stuff that they need, their threshold is so low that a squat is a great efficiency exercise for them because it actually accomplishes more at once. But as they advance, that may no longer be the case as they have to use more loading and the you know, the amount of stress they have to put in to get the stimulus becomes higher Then they need to start separating those things out. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then before we get into like the specific, um, breaking down exercise and things like that. So, um, so let, let's just, you know, let's just bring up the squat as an example now. And, mm -hmm. um, we don't even have to dissect like the very specifics of like what, what's the ideal stimulus for the quads and whatnot, but let's just assume that, okay, we have, I don't know, like a knee extension movement, like that's really all that we need for for the quads, preferably with the hips extended so that we are hitting the rec fem, rectus femoris as well. So, you know, like there, there is that common pushback that, okay, even though in, in, on paper, maybe a, a CC squat or a reverse Nordic or something like that would be the best for the quads. Even then, you would benefit from something that is just going to hit you much more heavily, like a squat, because that's just uh, that, that's like that's a compound lift, right? But then we often have an actual uh, like a hard time actually reasoning for why a compound lift is better than a more isolation type lift. And then people use these very kind of nebulous terms that are just kind of they just kind of feel right to say them because we don't really know how to express it, like. You know, Mike Israel will say something like raw stimulus magnitude. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe he could elaborate on it a lot more deeply. But I think a lot of people will say something like this. It's just like it hits you harder. But like how? Like, does it really hit you harder? Like, does it really hit the actual muscle that you want to hit harder? Or it's just no, like there is like an actual whatever, like functional anatomy, like this muscle does this. As long as you're doing that, it doesn't matter if it's a squat or a leg extension or, or what have you. So do you think there's something inherently better about these heavy, big compound lifts? Or what do you think about that? No, I don't think that they're better. I think that, uh, well, I will put it this way. I'd say you can't define better without defining the goal and who it, and, and who that, you know, who is trying to achieve that goal, right? So if we take, for instance, a squat versus an isolated knee extension exercise, it could be a leg extension, could be the sissy squat thing that you mentioned, whatever it is. Um, really, if we're talking about, and we'll, we'll just say, we're talk, when we talk about stimulus, let's say we're referencing a stimulus for hypertrophy, which really the most, you know, we can talk about mechanical tension as being the, you know, the main driver there, right? And so my goal is to get a mechanical stimulus or mechanical tension stimulus in the target tissue that I'm going for. And that means that I have to be getting to quote unquote, like effective reps in that tissue, which means that the muscle that I'm targeting has to be the thing that is actually going to create failure in the exercise. Because if something else creates failure first, then then, then I can't, I can't get to those effective reps. Therefore, I'm not going to be able to get the amount of stimulus in that target tissue. So if somebody, 
naturally has a very, you know, I'm falling forward squat, they can't get their knees far forward because of either their structures or ankle mobility or whatever, then there's a chance that something is going to fail before their quads, right? There's a chance that it's going to be their low back or it's going to be their glutes or, or whatnot. So that's a person that may need to move in the direction of trying to figure out, well, how can I make the quads a larger part of the equation of what this is, right? So if they go to something that's like a leg extension, obviously that eliminates everything else from being challenged, right? It's just, it's just knee extension. So that's, that's, that's the, that's the farthest extreme that we could look at. It's literally just isolating that one joint motion, but that there's a continuum that exists between the leg extension and somebody that has like a hip dominant squat to being able to say, well, okay, I could, you know, I could go on wedges and put my knees forward. I could, you know, do a hack squat. I could do a hack squat with my knees, you know, elevated. I could do a leg press with my feet really low. There's all of these things that as long as whatever exercise you're doing is enough for that individual to make their quads the limiter. They can get the maximal stimulus in their quads. Like they can get to the effective reps. They can take their quads to whatever degree of failure they want in that exercise. And then there's other things to consider with that, which are things like stability, loadability, right? So if you take an exercise like the sissy squat, for example, and it's going to have a lot more stability challenges than a hack squat right? It's going to have a lot less loadability. Uh, it doesn't afford you the opportunity to adjust that resistance profile like you could with a hack squat by applying some accommodating resistance and stuff like that. So even though a sissy squat may be, well, this takes out the load on the back, you know, and it takes out the glutes, it adds in the limiters of stability and load and limiting and, and a limited resistance profile. So what I say like, well, that's just the go-to exercise because it's more biased, I would say, well, no, we only need to be as biased or as isolated as that suits the goal. So for instance, we don't need to have zero load on the spine. We just need to have not so much load that there's not a safety issue and it's not what fatigues, right? Same thing for hip extension, right? Like the goal, if I'm doing a quad exercise, it doesn't have to be zero glutes for it to be a good quad exercise. It just has to be quad biased enough that the quads are the limiter. And then there may be instances where I can find an exercise that would be good for quads and would be good for glutes and not overload my back. And that would be actually efficiency in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish for that individual, right? Maybe I don't have as much time. Maybe we don't have as many exercises. Maybe it's a person where their threshold is low enough that they can afford to load those two things at the same time. And they're not actually going to get, you know, a diminished response in either of those, right? So there's a lot of ways to look at this stuff, but I think, you know, instead of saying, well, it's best to train this way. The goal is, is, is to get to that good enough threshold. And when we come to isolating or biasing muscles, uh, not thinking that if we just keep going to the extreme, that it's getting better and better and better. Cause oftentimes like in the instance with the sissy squat, for example, you might actually lose range of motion, lose stability and lose, lose like some of the loading parameters in your pursuit of this extreme isolation of to just load the quad and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And would you say that in many cases, um, it's, it's just a matter of logistics, like what, what equipment we have available. So like if hypothetically we had some amazing device, which was able to mimic that CC squat motion perfectly while giving us really good stability and all of those things and, and loadability. So we could be really nicely incrementally progressive then on paper that that would be the best thing or, or, or still then there could be some benefits of, of having a more. I guess like compound D lift that still involves some, some glutes and some other stuff. 
Yeah, so I mean, people people will have varying goals going in there. So there's always going to be there's always going to be a place and a time to use the different tools. The goal is is like whatever logistical like logistic obstacles you have, you make the best decision with is what you have, right? So if I had to choose a free weight, you know, sissy squat, but I had a, a perfectly good hack squat there, I would never choose the sissy squat over the hack squat, especially if I also had access to a leg extension. Because well, when we're looking at the sissy squat, like uh, the whole rationale of like, well, okay, we can load the, we can load the rec fem more because we're in hip extension. The ability for that rec fem to work in a sissy squat is limited by the coordination of the pelvis and your body weight. So it's, it's not an ideal environment. And an ideal environment for loading a two joint muscle is that one joint is completely stable, not that we load across both joints. So for example, we don't train biceps by trying to load shoulder extension and, and elbow flexion at the same time, right? We'd, so our goal is to make it so that the shoulder is stable and then maximally load the elbow flexion component, right? And the same thing for the quad. So in an exercise like a leg extension, you'd be better off doing a lying leg extension than say a sissy squat to train the rec fem because we would be in a position where the the rec fem is not necessarily, you know, trying to move the hip so much as as much as it is just acting as a stabilizer at one joint and a mover at another joint, right? And that's how with two joint muscles, we tend to bias them the most is we basically position the joint where their forces are as close to neutral at the joint that we're not going to move and not going to load so that then they can produce as much force at the joint that is going to move and we do want to load, right? And I know this is like, this is one of my biggest things with like looking at, you know, Doug's view of anatomy and anatomical motion is a lot of times he'll say, well, okay, we move origin to insertion, but like an exercise like the biceps, triceps, whatever, a lot, you know, quads, hams, they cross two joints. So you have to, you have to, you have to account for what's happening force wise at both of those joints when you choose how you would actually position the body and do that exercise. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so then, okay, let let let's actually look at some examples. So, um, we can go into our little uh, Bible that we compiled here. So, um, I see behind you on the board, like you have a, I think that's a squatting squatting person there. <laughs> so maybe we can yeah. actually start there. So, uh, can we can we just look into like that? That's one of the most controversial things that Doug will say um, that the the squat is is it's just fine like it, it's going to involve the quads like you can build nice big quads doing the squat but in terms of efficiency like that would be a six out of ten efficiency because because of how your i mean we can look up the specific quotes but because how your shin how your tibia is angle angled uh, versus something like a cc squat where it would be so much more efficient so can we look into why why that reasoning is is uh, is not correct in your opinion yeah. So, all right. So, I mean, I'll step back here. Hopefully you guys can still uh, see me here and let's see if I can uh, make this like uh, nice, big and, and full screen for you guys. Right. Oh, nice. So first thing, uh, just the first thing I want to say is with these examples is, is that it's just important to be accurate so that we know when we're talking about magnitude of stimulus that we're, we're idea. So, or we're, we're, <laughs> We're, we're not misrepresenting something by saying, hey, this is three times better when really it's only maybe like 20% better. And then when you add in the other things, that's where like, well, if it only moves 20% changing this variable, but this other variable then would move the opposite direction, that's going to be important. Because when we look at like a squat or a hack squat or a pendulum squat or any sort of single leg exercises, our foot is in contact with the ground. 
and that gives our lower limb the ability to stabilize the knee. Like a gastroc is a very potent stabilizer of the knee. When we do something like a leg extension or we do something like you know a, a sissy squat where essentially we're not able to really plantar flex, that that is actually part of the equation, right? That's where it, that starts affecting the loadability of the exercise, right? Same thing for pelvic stability, right? So if we do a sissy squat, there's a lot, lot more coordination to do. Pelvic stability becomes a factor. So in order for us to move in the direction of something that would be, say, less opti optimal from an orthopedic standpoint or less optimal from a stability standpoint, it better be really, really good at something else to balance that out. So when we look at the analysis of Doug doing the squat here, and this is just a picture I, you know, I pulled from his YouTube video so that we wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, use any of his, uh, his paid content. But um, he's using the shin angle here as a way of calculating the load. And that's not the way that we would calculate force and loading on these joints. The way that we would calculate force and loading on these joints is we would look at the moment arm for the knee, right? Which would basically be, since gravity is straight down, the moment arm for the knee would be the distance from the knee horizontally to the guy's center of mass, right? And that's how we calculate the torque requirement of the knee. It's very simple. It's actually simpler than the, than the thing Doug's trying to do by saying like, well, if the tibia is 30 degrees, then that means that it's a third of the way and therefore that the uh, that it's he's saying that's like okay that's a third as long as what the tibia would be if it was laying horizontal um, and that's I, I don't know how anybody that understands mechanics or would be educated in this would either use that equation or think that that's going to be appropriately because arcs don't move in a like they don't move in a linear fashion so for instance at the top of a circle uh, which is actually kind of what I'm going to just demonstrate here, right? At the top of a circle, so when a, a tibia would be straight up and it starts going forward, it actually is moving more horizontally than it is going up and down. Like the knee goes really far forward, but once the knee gets like, you know, past 45 degrees, it starts moving vertical. So the, actually the majority of your increase in moment arm occurs in the top portion of the motion. And then trying to get that tibia further and further flat you actually don't increase the loading on the quads much more. Like you're basically your increase in loading diminishes the greater the angle, if that makes sense. So the way that we would actually calculate this is very different. So if we actually took 30 degrees because it moves horizontal more, that means it's actually getting closer to 50% of the length of the tibia in terms of how far forward it would go, which means that the assessment of saying that like you would need three times as much load is at least off by an order of magnitude of about 50%, right? So we can't use this calculation that Doug has as a way of saying that the, uh, that the leg extension is going to be that much more efficient. It's going to require that much more load. So in terms of magnitude, that's just simply not true. Also, if we looked at the leg extension, we don't get to use the whole length of the tibia. We just get to use where the contact would be of the thing. So we're actually only able to use about three-fourths of the tibia length anyway mm -hmm. in a leg extension. So if you add in the fact that he's miscalculating the load of the squat, and he's over-calculating over the load of the leg extension, the amount of force that's going through these things is actually, like, it's not that different. So in terms of the physics portion, this is just wrong. Now, from the efficiency standpoint, if my goal was to train the quads and expend the least amount of effort in the body, then I would say, yeah, a leg extension is a better choice than the squat. But I wouldn't say that it's the better choice in terms of absolute stimulus because 
the foot is off the ground. So there's just, there's just a degree of stimulus and loading, especially in the lengthened portion, that we can accomplish in a leg extension that we can accomplish in an exercise where the foot is on the ground. And so a better way of looking at, like if I had to choose like, okay, the best hypertrophy-based exercises, it would be something where the foot is on the ground, but I could still get that knee forward and bias the quads more than the hips and the back. So I would look at strategies of like, well, if we heel elevated this guy's squat, so his knees went further forward, the load would shift more to the quads, less on the hip, and he would be more upright. And that might be plenty sufficient enough. That might be plenty sufficient to protect his low back. That might be plenty sufficient that he's not expending too much energy. Because if, if you're only expending a small amount of effort in the glutes to do your quad exercise, that's not gonna have a negative impact on your ability to stimulate or recover. Right? But if you're getting just as much fatigue because it's fairly balanced, then you could make the argument of we need to find a way to make this more quad bias. So you could make the argument that, okay, a squat for an individual might not be the most quad biased approach. So therefore, it might not be the most efficient way for them to get a quad stimulus because it comes with other things. Right? But we can't say that like, well, okay, you know, it takes so much more load on the body uh, to do the leg extension than it does here. It's like, relatively the same amount of force is going through the knee, right? And if we're, if we're looking at these things, the limiter is really how strong your quads are. So you'll actually see in some people, the limitation for them being able to push their knees forward is they are literally maximally loading their quads and they can't push them any further forward because they don't have the strength to handle that increase in leverage, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, while like I said, in principle, we can agree here and say like, yeah, a leg extension is a more efficient way to train the quads in isolation than a squat, right? But I don't think we should make that seem like you should just do leg extensions, right? Because the chances are for hypertrophy, you'd be better off doing a hack squat or a pendulum squat if you had access to those machines, right? And chances are that you would probably be better off not choosing leg extension over squat, but maybe modifying your squat and also doing leg extension. That would, that would probably be the, be the best, right? Because you could have some stimulus that was very, very biased, but then you could have some stimulus that had a little bit better loading potential and stability because you still have that foot contact on the ground. Right. And, and, and so just, just to clarify, the foot contact on the ground, like that, that's just an important factor because of the stability and the loadability of the exercise? Yep. Yep. Yeah. If we, if we, if we sacrifice those things for isolation, we might still get less, less stimulus, right? Um, and definitely, you know, if you want to take this to an orthopedic standpoint, right, or a strength standpoint, it's very important to include those conditions in loading. Right. Um, and leg extensions, um, like ideally I'm assuming like the, the best leg extensions are those that have the, the cam, like they're also loading the quads in, in their length and position a little bit more, like especially plate loaded ones. You often just like really hitting that top portion of the movement anyway. So when people look at the leg extension in isolation, they choose to like, oh, well, we should load this more in the lengthened position because they they think that those quads are going to be much stronger in that bottom position, and, or they think that from a hypertrophy perspective, uh, that's the way to do it. But we actually do the opposite, and that's because we don't usually we don't use leg extension in isolation. We look at the effect of the program, so we choose a lower body pressing motion, knowing that that is really going to challenge the lengthened position, like. 
Like if you do a squat, it's hardest at the bottom. You do a hack squat, you know, it's hardest at the bottom. You do a pendulum squat, you know, it's, it's all of those things are already challenging the lengthen position, right? So the leg extension offers us the opportunity to load full knee extension, right? It's the only thing that can really challenge the knee when it's fully straight. So we try and make the art, the way we load the leg extension complementary. So we actually make the resistance higher at the top. So it's more complementary to the lower body pressing exercises that we're doing in terms of both the stimulus and the neurological demand. But also what we're doing then is, is that if you were to say what is the, we'll say the least safe position of a leg extension, and I'm not a person that's like, don't do leg extensions, they're bad. Um, but it would be that bottom position, right? Mm. So that, that's what, so by doing this, we can also increase the orthopedics and the safety of the exercise by saying, well, okay, we're not going to challenge the bottom position as much as we are going to do the top, right? And so if you have uh, like pretty much the only only company that makes cams that will actually overload the top position uh, is Prime because you can actually move and select that. But by default, most machines that have a cam that shifts the resistance curve all bias the lengthened. So if you wanted to do that without the cam, you could either have a partner add extra resistance at the top. You could use tempo like quarter reps or pauses at the top. You could band it. So that there's, there's other solutions to be able to do that. But I would say that anytime you're looking at an exercise and you're trying to figure out what you want to do for the resistance profile, you have to figure out what are the qualities of that exercise? Like, why are you doing that exercise? And if mm -hmm. I'm doing a leg extension, it's because this is the only exercise that can challenge the short position. And if you're smart, you're not going to just do leg extensions and that's your whole quad routine. You're going to include lower body pressing. So why don't you make the net stimulus of those two exercises as good as possible by making them complementary rather than trying to make them the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and, and it really nicely cleared up also the, like the equation like why like how do squats compare to a cc squat so um i don't know if you have any uh, other points that you wanted to make on the squats uh why is that a terrible exercise or why is not <laughs> why is it not a terrible exercise topic or uh, we can move on to another one yeah i mean i would i would close that with look look a squat is just a is is going to be different for every individual and all you have to do is, is you just have to figure out can i make a squat good enough for my goal. So if my goal is for quads, do I have the ability to raise my heels enough or whatever so that my quads are going to be the thing that goes to failure, right? And if I have a better option that like a hack squat or a pendulum squat or something like that, um, you know, if I have a safety, any, anything that can make that job easier, but still apply good loading and good stability, you know, that's a step in the right direction. But you don't have to be like, oh, well, because a quad has a bar on my back and it, you know, there's some load on my spine that that therefore makes it bad for my back, right? Like mm -hmm. for instance, spinal compression is really not bad. It's actually one of the most positive things that we can do for disc health is to do exercises that compress the spine, right? And nobody ever injures their back from spinal compression. They do it for if they're mismanaging flexion extension. And oftentimes it's, that's just a load management issue, right? It's rather than like, you know, you can load your spine in flexion, you can load your spine in extension. I think the industry is starting to come around this, that like, you know, we don't have to have that super fragile mindset, but we need to focus on technique and load management. And that is, that is the key to, you know, keeping your back healthy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Um, cool. Then, um, should we go to triceps next or 
lats and sure. triceps are the, the ones I'm the most curious about. So uh, whichever comes first in your uh, slideshow. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, so this is another one that I just pulled, right? And it's in terms of the math and, you know, th this, this is my pet peeve, right? Is, is that, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to say that something is based on physics and say that it's an absolute truth because physics said so, then you should at least do the math appropriate correctly for the physics. So in this example where Doug says, well, because the, uh, because the forearm is, 10 degrees off center or whatever, right? So it's 80 degrees, which is 11%, you know, the way between zero and 90. He's like, okay, therefore only 11% of the load, right, is, you know, challenging. So it's, it's his way of trying to figure out like what percentage of the moment arm uh, would we be loading, right? But that's not, that's not how you would calculate that. You would actually calculate that distance horizontally. So if we just put up the same illustration here, Right, and we look at 10 degrees, and I say, well, okay, if I'm 11% is this red line here, um, but if we actually moved that uh, that that forearm, it's actually double that, right? So, in the dip, the amount of the, the efficiency of the load in terms of loading on the tricep is actually double what uh, Doug's example gives, right? So, very similar to what we were talked about with the squat, where so it's like when we're looking at how big of a difference are these things, right? So, this is just recapping the squat because I don't know if I pointed these out, but the red arrow or the red line here, like in terms of this distance in the MOM arm, that's what Doug is claiming based off of his math that it's only 30%, but the reality of how much, how long that moment arm has gotten when the tibia is at that length, right, is close to 50% more, right? And I would say 50% more or almost double in the case of the tricep, like that's a pretty significant difference, right? To say something actually loads only half as much as it does or 50% uh, less than it really does. So when we look at an exercise like the dips, would is that is that a, isolated tricep exercise? No. But is it as poor of loading the triceps as Doug says? Also no, right? And so I just think like when we're, we're looking at these and we're making decisions, it's important to be accurate with that because, you know, when we look at the triceps, you got three heads of the triceps. Two of them are impacted by the shoulder position and, and one is not. And so when we look at pressing motions where basically the shoulder is coming through some flexion, adduction, whatever the exercise happens to be, right? The, those tend to be antagonistic motions at the shoulder for the triceps, which means a pressing motion is a great way to bias the medial head of the triceps because if it's the only guy that can contribute to elbow extension without being in any way negatively influenced by the shoulder motion, that muscle is going to be biased the most, mm -hmm. right? And then the other two heads of the triceps will be biased the most when we position the shoulder in a way that they have more of a neutral force at the shoulder. And then therefore they can be, you know, the main drivers of elbow extension. So, uh, in Doug's and Doug's thing, of, uh, he's like, well, all the triceps just cross the, the allocrine process of the elbow and therefore they have to all be simultaneously doing elbow extension. It's like, well, yes, they all elbow, they all do the elbow extension component the same, right? But they do that by connecting to another point, which influences the shoulder joint or doesn't depending on which tricep we're doing. So the, the long head of the tricep, if that is engaging, it has to be exhibiting the force 
at the shoulder at the same time as the elbow, right? If the lateral head of the tricep, right, the lateral head of the tricep goes into what we call the intramuscular septum of the arm, right? And it basically almost like, it basically makes it almost kind of like merge with part of the posterior deltoid complex. So it kind of, like this is where there's, there's levels to anatomy knowledge, right? If you just learn anatomy, it's like, oh, it inserts at this point and this point, rather than learning like, well, this insertion point is actually this long, broad thing, and this origin actually shares a common, you know, piece of connective tissue with this other thing so that these two muscles actually have a synergistic pull on each other, that, that, end up, that ends up having a big difference in terms of how we would choose to position the shoulder for the elbow extension exercise. And then what we can see when we measure the EMG and we measure the moxie is like, okay, the nervous system is actually following that logic of which thing would be the most efficient tool at that point, meaning that it would have the least impact on the shoulder so that it could dedicate all of its tension forces to the elbow extension. We see there's a big difference in how we coordinate that muscle contraction, even though all of the muscles just cross the elbow same way. They roll over the adolicron the same way, but they all have different origins, and therefore the nervous system is going to selectively use the ones that are the most efficient. Now, you can make the argument that, you know, the closer we go to failure, the more the body's going to try and use everything, but that means that those ones that weren't working as much early are only getting the volume of coming on towards the later sets, right, rather than being active and accumulating that fatigue. So from, like, if we were to estimate or theorize how many of a, how many quote unquote effective reps or how much stimulus you'd be getting in the different heads of the triceps is you'd be getting a little bit more in the thing that started working the earliest and was the most efficient line of pull, both at the elbow and the shoulder, right? So hopefully that kind of covers that. This is just a, you know, just, just a, that's just bad math, but also the principle of saying, you know, there's only one way to train the tricep is We'll, we'll say somewhat flawed. So doing something, whether it be a dip, whether it be a, a you know, a, a press in front of you or something like a, like we have an exercise that's kind of similar to the JM press that we use. And we have a cable that comes over the shoulder press that we use. Those are going to be great exercises for loading or biasing the medial head of the triceps. But then for the long head or the lateral head, those will be in uh, different positions, right? And we actually have, uh, you know, on our social media, we've actually shared some of that lab data, lab data to be able to illustrate those concepts uh, to people. Yeah, I know that that was a lot of awesome things you said there. So, um, so then let's just uh, like summarize uh, like two things. Like first of all, just on the dip. So you you did outline that it's not isolating the tricep per se because like th there will be other things involved but it's also mm -hmm. not as poorly loading the triceps as as doc said it it did um so j just in a general sense what, what do you think about the dip by the way like is that like like that would be actually one exercise where based on my just understanding of like what stimulates what and how much and and sort of looking at kind of cost benefit risk reward things like that and not having the deep biomechanical knowledge that that someone like you would have i was actually leaning towards well like i i just don't see like a very good reason to include a dip where you can do other pressing exercises like even like overhead presses and and like horizontal presses like bench presses and whatever and also some like isolation stuff with cables or dumbbells is there a good reason to include a dip i don't know what, what would you say so f from a biomechanics perspective 
especially once we get to the upper body, it is so easy for us to choose better positions that I'm not gonna use a dip for triceps very often, right? It's when we're talking about hypertrophy because if I use something like cables, I can position or move the humerus exactly how I want, whereas in a dip, you're using a fixed width, it's the bars, you know, it's not the most ideal position. That being said, I would still include a press, but it would be a, be a press that uh, wasn't, didn't have as much shoulder and pec involvement, right? But it would still include that antagonistic motion at the shoulder to help bias the medial triceps if I was trying to really develop that in an advanced athlete or I was trying to separate out that stimulus across different workouts or different phases or whatnot. So I would still have an exercise that would do both shoulder flexion and elbow extension in there occasionally because I know that's gonna be a very medial head bias thing. But I wouldn't use, I would use that over the dip right? Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. But in terms of pure biomechanics, especially when we get to the upper body, because I mean, with the lower body, it's hard because most things that we train the lower body, we have fixed foot position, whether they're hack squats, leg presses, squats, sissy squats, doesn't matter. Your feet are stuck in, in one spot and our feet can't grab things. So our ability to move in weird angles is very, very limited with our lower body or in terms of our, how, how much we can optimize exercises biomechanically, we have much more freedom in the upper body than we do the lower body because we have hands and opposable thumbs and Cable yeah. machines. Yeah, yeah. No, and and then um, so when it comes to the, the long head of the triceps, so so yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Doug meant Doug's point is that well, it's um, it, it's just not needed. Like yes, you will stretch the long head of the triceps out if you raise your head um, high up, but there is no need to pre-stretch uh, a muscle to to stimulate it optimally. So. So what do you think about that um, in a general sense? Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with drug, Doug there, and I don't understand the term pre-stretch so much. It's like, so for instance, I mean, if we look at single joint muscles, like we're, we're training them through a full joint cycle if we're doing, a, you know, an elbow extension, tricep extension exercise or whatever, if we're coming to full elbow flexion, right? So to say that, like, well, we would not train the long head of the triceps in that same condition of going through its full length of well, full length just because it's not needed does that mean that we don't even have to do the full range of motion of the regular tricep extension because we don't need to lengthen the the other triceps um, mm -hmm. and I think if we look at the preponderance of evidence there does seem to be a significant bias of exercises that are more lengthened tend to be better for hypertrophy especially if they've made some effort to uh, do uh, to equate the volume, right? So, yeah. I mean, we've seen that. I think we've seen that in some of the studies on partial range of motion here just recently of showing like, oh, okay, well, like the bottom of the leg extension was better at hypertrophy than like all out. And there's different reasons that, you know, that happens when you look at those things in isolation. So when we look at the long head of the triceps, I, there, there's two things to consider. One is I think we should consider the length that we train everything at. Right. So, for instance, if you do a standing, you know, dumbbell curl, you're actually closer to that respective motion than as the, like the, as this. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you if you think of the bicep as if we're doing standing bicep curls, we're actually getting closer to the equivalent of what triceps would be back mm -hmm. here. Right. And we don't say, well, we should only train biceps like with our shoulder, our arms out in front of us. Yeah. Right. Because we don't need to stretch them. So I just don't think one that's logical or that it, it fits the pattern at all. But the other thing is, is that you can't just look at it as like it's just lengthening it. It's really about positioning the shoulder in the place where 
that muscle can optimally contribute to the elbow extension. So it's not just overhead, it also has to do with the orientation. So I guess this is where maybe I can bring uh, Wade in here. If you can, can oh, you nice. kind of see Wade's, Wade's shoulder joint here? Can you see the tricep? I can tilt you, tilt you down a little bit, but I might cut myself out just to here, right? So we got the long head of the tricep here. And so the point that I was trying to get across, and I'm sorry for you guys that are just listening to the audio, but jump on YouTube because you'll love this, yep. is to, for this muscle to contribute maximally to the elbow extension, you want the shoulder to be in a position where this muscle is going to have the least effect on the shoulder, meaning that you want to get it orientated so it would basically just be pulling the shoulder joint together, but it wouldn't be trying to extend it or adduct it or anything like that. So, and that can happen down here if we're in slight external rotation. So if I turn this this way, hopefully you guys can see that that kind of brings this into a straight line, whereas if I come over here, this, like the long head of the tricep here would actually want to have a bit of a rotational force on the shoulder, right? So it's about, having this in the appropriate plane. So basically I can bias the long head and this is, this will show up on the MG. It'll show up on all of our tests. If I have the humerus positioned in the scapular plane and that can be in a degree of extension or in a degree of shoulder flexion. Cause even right here, you see, this is basically a straight line, right? So it essentially would be pulling the glenoid into the scapula, but it wouldn't be trying to move the humerus around. But say I take an exercise, and like, and I wrap around like this. Now you see this actually would have a vector for wanting to pull the arm out, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at how do we bias or how do we make an exercise good for a muscle, it's not just, well, does this add length or does this add shortening? It's actually, does this line up, in, to use Doug's terms again, insertion to origin, in a way where we can actually get the most out of that muscle at the joint we're loading. Because if my brain has to say, hey, I can only use so much of the long head, because if I use any more, I have to actually fight with another muscle to hold the shoulder still, then it's gonna say, let's use more of the other ones. Does uh -huh. that make sense? So neurologically, our body is always trying to find the path of least resistance. So when we look at two joint muscles, right? our body has to be in a position where that two joint muscle isn't having to be, we don't have to counteract it at the non-moving joint. Does You're that right. make sense? So yeah. biceps, triceps, all of these, we can, we, can, we can improve the bias of those by actually positioning them better. And if we just arbitrarily say that, well, this is lengthened and this is shortened, somebody could easily say, well, this must be better because this is lengthened, but this is actually a really crappy way to train the long head of the tricep. My phone is, or my watch is talking to me. But this is actually a really crappy position because that long head is wrapped around and it's going to be wanting to pull my arm into abduction, which is why when people are here, the first thing we want to do is they do this, mm -hmm. right? You see anybody and they get tired. So if they're doing, if they're doing skull crushers with their elbows straight forward, as you watch as people fatigue, even though this is a more direct path for the elbow, they start to want to do this. And that's because that's the only way they can get the tricep that isn't completely fatigued to start participating is to start trying to move it into its shoulder plane so that it can now contribute more to elbow extension. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if, if, if one held their arm out like this, then that would be better, for example. So like overhead, but like kind of elbows like flared out from the get-go um, to the hold side. Hold on. I, lo I lost your audio there for just a second. Can you repeat that, Abel? Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. I think for some reason my, my watch picked up that I was talking and then Siri um. like 
she she butted you out. Ah, so gotcha. yeah, so if you could just repeat that first. Yeah, yeah. So I was just saying that like so so like this not would not be good, but if I put it like this, then that would be better. So like cable was coming from here, pulling like this, yeah. then that would be good. Yeah, it's this so it's not straight horizontal, but it's the scapular plane. So it's like slightly off from horizontal, okay. right? If you think of how your scapula would be sitting on the on your rib cage, you would essentially make your humerus parallel with that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that that's that that's super interesting. Um yeah, and, and I guess like uh those videos that you post, um, it's like this. I think you just mentioned it, like it's kinda like a cross, like the cable is coming from behind and you're kind of doing this. Um yep. so that that's sort of like operating on the same principle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that so basically to bias the different heads of the tricep, they all do elbow extension, but it's whatever you do with the shoulder that's going to change what I recruit the most, right? Because that's going to change, well, which thing is the most efficient at the shoulder joint? Is it wasting energy? Does it require me to co-contract another muscle to stabilize it, et cetera, right? And right. that goes for pretty much all of the two joint muscles, right? And then when we look at single joint muscles, we have to look at the whole equation of what, what, every, what else is going on. So, you know, if you think back to when we were talking about the squats, do we do we neg- do we neglect the squats or the, the squats the quads that don't cross the hip just to try and make the best exercise for the rec fem? Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's like maybe the rec fem should kind of have its own exercise that we periodize in to specialize it forever. But if we have if we have four technically five but four quads, do we get a subpar stimulus in three of them to get a little bit more stimulus in the fourth? Uh, right. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's one of the reasons where I'm like, man, why would you, why would you just do like sissy squats and leg extensions and not keep a good lower body press in there that was quad biased because it's going to probably be so much better for your VMO and your lateralis and your intermedius. Right. And then have a smaller amount of volume that you can add in that, because it's not that you get zero stimulus in, you know, your, uh, rect fem, if you're doing those exercises, you're just not getting a very good one. So you probably only need to add then a little bit of volume of something that would be a little bit more biased for the rect fem, right? Yeah. So a lying leg extension, a multi-hip leg extension, a regular leg extension, a back foot elevated split squat, like those would be all things that then would be complementary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make, makes makes a lot of sense. Um, by the way, are you good with time or um, just... Yeah, so we're good. We're good. Awesome. Yeah. I mean... I'm, I'm a fan of like, you know, the Joe Rogan, like, man, talk it out, get <laughs> it all out there. Then, then a day later, maybe like, man, I wish I would have, I wish we would have said this or, you know, gone in that level of detail. Yeah, no, no, no. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree completely. Um, so can we talk about the lats latissimus, like my, my, my personal favorite body part as of late and, um, Doug, uh, definitely. I mean, so like you and Doug, like the two people who uh, like said the most things about it that were like, uh, kind of like, like, like going against a lot of the things that I was thinking about it before. So like, um, I'm, I'm really wondering how your, your views contrast. I mean, I know it's sort of, cause I see your, uh, exercises that you tend to do on your Instagram page. Um, but, um, yeah, like, I don't know if, if, if this is something that you have any kind of slides on, but um, I can sort of qu- really quickly run down, if not, what Doug says about it in general. I'll, 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 let, you, um, I'll let you give Doug's side and then I'll respond. How about that? Okay, so um, yeah, I, I will try to not paraphrase him too much, but basically his, his thing is that the, the optimal resistance profile for the lats or ideal motion is sort of like 
arms up like 30 like up at around 30 degrees anything higher than that and that's not really going to accomplish anything except for jamming up the shoulder and like sort of diagonal so like not really out in front like what you would do in the case of a close grip pull down or like a straight arm pull down or something like that and then you're pulling it to your side um and then you you kind of want to like lean into it a little bit um because otherwise like you would get too much external rotation and that would that would also just cause shoulder discomfort and would not be ideal for the lats and uh, otherwise like chin ups lat pull downs are are fine but like maybe like a 7 out of 10 uh in terms of efficiency and then something like a row is just a flat out suboptimal um so because like short range of motion just not the ideal movement in general so um, if, if I butchered this a lot, I will just, uh, cut in myself, like saying it a bit more accurately, but that, that's basically yeah. the, the actual practical side of it. Yep. Okay. So first I would say is, is that when we're looking at lats, we have three divisions of the lats, right? Um, just like we have three divisions of the pecs. We potentially may have more, um, that we just don't have the ability to test for, right? But they're very functionally different, especially as they get to their shorter position. So when we're looking at, you know, the lats, we can't, it would be erroneous to say there's one exercise that is going to be optimal for all three of these muscles that especially as the arm comes close to their body are pulling at such different directions. Like they literally get to the point where they're, they're kind of pulling against each other as the arm comes in closer to the body because it's got one thing that's pulling up the, the iliac fibers and then the thoracic fibers actually have a small upward vector to them, right? As, mm. as you start to come into that position. So the, to think that there's one exercise that is going to just be like, okay, that's just good enough that you could maybe make that case for a beginner, right? Because they're like, as long as their lats are working at some portion of that range of motion, that's going to be to the threshold that they need. Right. But for somebody that is for a trained individual, you, you have to start incorporating other things. Right. And if we look at, if we look at the research, like there isn't research that outside of our lab that looks at the way we do lats or that the way that Doug, you know, that Doug's pulling exercise. Um, but there is plenty of research looking at, but like handle width and grip orientation and stuff like that. And pretty much everything shows that as you bring the arms in closer towards the body and you're doing more of a sagittal motion, that that tends to be better for lats. And as we start to go wider, like a wider elbowed row or a wider handle pull down, all shows more upper back hypertrophy, or if it's an EMG study, they show larger amplitudes in those position. And basically, Doug's pull in is basically a single arm version of a like a of, of a wide grip pull down if you will but just with the arm slightly more forward right um and what we do for lats is we we bring the arm way across the body and the reason for that is is that muscles don't muscles pull you know insertion to origin but between insertion and origin is a joint and also structures and so joints basically they, they restrict and constrain movement and they actually will change the orientation. You know, so like if we look at fiber direction in one position, we move the arm, fiber, fiber position changes. Like the direction of pull is dependent on how the arm is positioned because that joint is in there moving the humerus on an axis. So it's not like the, 
there's no position where the insertion and origin come together in a straight line and they just move linearly. Everything in the body moves in an arc. And then we have structures that basically form pulleys, which allows the muscles to basically change direction. So the actual function of a muscle in terms of its direction of pull is not necessarily what you would see on like a, like a, you know, in a coloring book and you're looking at the pictures of the muscle fibers, right? The actual direction of pull is wherever its last contact is with a body structure, because that's like a pulley, right? So that's like saying, well, you know, if, if I move a pulley up or down and I'm pulling the cable, that changes the direction of the cable, right? If I move my lats around the rib cage, that changes the way the lats are pulling when they're off of the rib cage. So basically all of our, all the fibers close to the origin sit on, the, you know, sit either on the rib cage or they connect down to the iliac. But as my arm starts to come up or forward, the actual contact point of those becomes more lateral or lower on the rib cage. So if I bring Wade in here again for, you know, an example, because he's, he's an, a bit of an attention whore, I tell you, <laughs> like he just hogs, hogs the spotlight, right? So, and yep. bring that down. So, and shrink my background here. So we have here in purple, we have some iliac fibers some lumbar fibers, and some thoracic fibers. So you can already see that this guy, like these fibers, they really wrap around, right? So they're coming around the rib cage, whereas these guys come along more of the side. So if I were to bring the arm up and out into like a dug position, right? But it would be externally rotated here, right? As you see, it's like, okay, these guys are pulling down. These guys would kind of be having a slight abduction type force or whatnot, right? And his motion is coming in like this. So is it loading some of these guys? Absolutely, it's not latless, but this position actually lines up even better with things like the teres major and these fibers of the posterior delt. And when we actually measure all these things simultaneously, that's exactly what we see is that because these guys are like, you, if I can pull you from the side, they're kind of being pulled away from the rib cage. That means that their relationship now, right, in terms of the line of pull is pretty much here, right? But if I come around here and start to use that rib cage, what it does is it gives them actually a better ability to do the flexion component. So not only if I'm going from here to here, Am I lengthening the lats, right? So I'm getting more of a stretch, but I'm actually improving their mechanics in terms of shoulder extension. And that becomes even greater as we bring the arm across this way. So I'm like, in terms of function, right? This, the function of these fibers is between this point and then basically their last point, last point of contact here, right? So these guys, this, is, this guy is a tremendously good puller in terms of extending the shoulder here, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas this guy, as I bring it across, is a very good abductor and puller, right? And this guy here, right? This is my thoracic lat here. This guy here ends up being a very, very good abductor in this position and then becomes a strong extensor in this. So all of these guys, their, their role kind of changes with the rib cage, right? So we can get more range of motion out of them while using the rib cage, and we can also get better mechanics in terms of their function. So if I was gonna do an iliac pull down, right? Something like this or a pull around, 
I would want an exercise that got me up here. And then this guy right here is going to be really biased, and that motion is going to come down here. If I wanted to bias this, well, then my stretch position is going to be a little bit more across the body, right? And as I pull, my end position is going to be a little bit more back. And then if I wanted to get more out of these fibers, I would actually load the arm more as a abductor versus an extensor in this component, and then really focus on that extension and the back component, right? So it would have different motions that we would use for these different exercises, right? And in right. these instances, this insertion point here, which is medial on the humerus, is always lined up with those fibers. Whereas to come out here, I actually have to externally rotate the lat fibers around the humerus. And one of the things that we know from doing a ton of experiments is that whenever we wrap tissue around a bone, like around the axis, that seems to be one of the best ways to decrease the amount that that muscle can contribute, right? Because if you think of it, now we're saying that like in this motion, it's gonna have an internal rotation force that has to be fought with muscles on the other side of the body, which is gonna be like posterior delts and teres, your external rotator. So we're creating a tug of war between how much the lats can contribute to shoulder extension with how much we can fight that rotation, right? Which is why probably when people do the pull-in that some people are like, oh, if I, if I position the arm just wrong, I get discomfort. And what I would say is that discomfort and optimal, if you think of those as two, uh, two opposite sides of the spectrum, you definitely wanna be, like you, you shouldn't like have a small tweak to your technique and you get dysfunction or pain if you were anywhere close to mm -hmm. optimal. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like if you're at optimal, you should have room for error before yeah. you get to pain or dysfunction. And so this is an exercise like, and this, the, I mean, I say this jokingly, but also serious. If I were to design an exercise where you brought the arm into the body, that was going to be the least amount of lats, it would be the lat pulling because I would want to have the arm. I would want to have those fibers away from the rib cage to decrease their mechanics. I would want to be an external rotation right? And I would not want to take them towards their lengthened position, which would all be around here, right? So this is lengthened lats. This is lengthened lats. All, all of this is lengthened lats. This is not even close. Like uh, Doug talks about not needing to use full range of motion by saying that, well, enough range of motion is if you cut 10% off of both ends. But this is, this is cutting way more than 10% off right here. And we're putting, in the, putting the body in a position where these guys here, right? Like this fiber is pretty much just pulling the arm in, right? And so the only, probably the only division that's getting something is these lower fibers here. And as you pull here, you have to internally rotate, which is adding basically, in Doug's video, he rotates the torso, I think, in the course, but in yeah. the YouTube videos, they don't. So I don't know what's the latest iteration or whatever they do. But essentially, if what you want, if I want to train these, is I want this insertion point to be lined up with the fiber direction the whole time. I don't ever want to have to do this motion as part of that component, because that means at some point in time, I had the, the arm or the humerus orientated in a way that would actually be decreasing my ability to use the lats. And then the last thing in there is, is that adding in the side bend, so a lot of people do that because they, they think they can feel it, but the lats, the lats don't 
side bend. They don't shorten the distance between the rib cage and the pelvis. They actually they shorten the distance between the glenohumeral socket here, like the, the shoulder complex. Like they pull this down and in, right? So the only reason that they would take your rib cage with you is, is that if you were like holding your scapula or something and you weren't actually allowed to depress the scapula you know, and move that clavicle. So they, they pull this complex down. So if you add in a side bend, all you're doing is you're just activating these oblique fibers and erectors that sit underneath here, which can give people the feeling they think they're getting more lats, when in reality, they're just, they're just contracting a muscle that's in the same region of the body, right? And uh -huh. so, that can mis so that can mislead them to thinking they're getting more lats, when in reality, they're working some posterior oblique fibers, some QLs, some, some of the erectors on that side. Those are the things that are all going to like pull the rib cage down. Now, those things are working to stabilize the whole time, right? And so if you start pulling them to their short position, you're going to get a, like a heightened sensation in those guys, right? But that's not your lats doing more work, especially when we consider that the thoracic guy here, right? As we get into this position, it actually has like a slightly upward trajectory, right? So there's no way that like, if you think of just looking at this portion, like this two thirds of the lats that doesn't attach here, this is like tilting the rib cage over is not gonna add any, any shortening to those guys. And this guy here, you could argue like, well, it does shorten that guy, but the better way to shorten that guy is to be pulling the, shoulder complex down, not side flexing the spine and bringing the rib cage closer, but bringing the shoulder closer to the hip. Right. Um, so, wow, like, okay, you, you said a lot of interesting stuff. Um, so like, if, if I'm understanding sort of like the practical application of this, like the, the most of the ideal lat exercise, and, and that, that's sort of what I tend to see if I look at your your exercises that you post about, like most of it will be moving in this kind of front frontal like sagittal plane not so yep. like like you won't be doing a lot of so like when you are doing like wider grip pull down like that that's for for upper back really yes yeah yep. and not just our data but pretty much every every piece of data there is in the research you know supports that stuff out here is more upper back stuff in here whether it be a row or a pull down uh, is more lats and then with what we've done with our research is saying you can actually make it even more lats if instead of just coming straight in the sagittal plane that you actually start coming across the body in the front so here's here, here's a tidbit from what we teach right is um, every muscle in the body and every specific division has an antagonist Mm -hmm. right? Meaning that one per one muscle short position is another p p muscles lengthened position, right? And so the motion for them is the same, but just with opposite loading, right? Yeah. And so to lengthen your lats is to shorten your pecs mm -hmm. and vice versa. And that can help people understand like, okay, this arm coming across the body and it's like, all right, well, it's these, these lower fibers here, the iliac fibers on the lat are actually their antagonist is the clavicular division of the pec. So to, to lengthen that portion of the lat, I actually bring the arm up towards, like I bring that pec insertion towards the clavicle, and that is that stretch, right? The sternal division is with the lumbar. So if, if I'm thinking of that, it's like, well, actually, okay, if I was thinking of really stretching those sternal fibers, you will feel that actually stretches the you know, respective fibers. Uh, of the lats, right, and vice versa. So when we're looking at chest motions and lat motions, like basically the, the, our torso muscles, you know, unironically use the torso, 
right? They use the rib cage for their function. Like we are, we are sagittally dominant thing. You know, we, we evolved from, you know, quadrupeds that moved in a sagittal plane to, you know, to bipedal things that moved in a sagittal plane. We're very good at this. There are literally actually no muscles that pull the arms or the legs straight out into a frontal plane. Zero. Like everything has some sort of slight forward to back path. So to think that the biggest, strongest, you know, muscles of our torso that move our humerus would not move in a sagittal plane, it would not utilize the rib cage is to me just, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay. So like, uh, j just to make sure that I'm understanding it correctly and also the listeners. So like, if we are looking at like some of the traditional exercise, like pulls that people do, like, let's, let's look at like a chin up, mm -hmm. like shoulder grip or narrow grip, chin up, whatever, supinated or, or neutral grip. Um, so like that would be then in your estimation, like a, a a mediocre movement for the lumbar and, and iliac lat fibers, and then not like not doing that much for the thoracic lats and correct that, that, that would be correct. Okay. And then yeah. if, if you look at, so I sent you the video, but like, we don't need to pull it up, but like it's, it's the lat prayer. You may have seen it from other people mm -hmm. though. So like it, it basically like you go forward, but really like it's basically a straight arm pull down type motion. Like, mm -hmm. and so that would be like iliac lats and uh lumbar but not but but not like it it would be better if it went like across your body more so and like uh pulling, yeah. pulling it back like this so there's one complication when it comes to pullover motions is with pullover motions they tend to work the shoulder in like uh like a just a pivot right of just isolated extension mm -hmm. and the lats they, they extend the humerus, but they also translate the humerus a ton, right? Meaning that the, 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 my whole shoulder girdle is being pulled back to shorten these guys, right? It, whether that's down more for iliac or back more for thoracic, but like my whole shoulder joint is going forward. And to stretch them, I'm, I'm actually having to protract and like bring that shoulder complex across. So with the pullover, where we're kind of isolating the extension and we're eliminating the translation of the humerus, those tend not to be as good a lap movements, even though they can be high sensation movements. So anytime that the joint position becomes harder to manage, we actually experience a heightened sensation because we're having to coordinate that movement more. And so in the case of the pullover, we actually see that even though it's moving an extension in a good plane because it's missing one of the key elements of the motion that those still end up actually being more upper back bias than a pull down or a row motion where the where the shoulder complex actually translates around the ribs as well mm -hmm. does that make sense so yeah. so something like a lat prayer is not latless it's i would i would say that motion is it will say it's like even though, even though it's in the in that plane, it's about as bad of a lot biased exercise as you could do and still be in that plane of motion because it's missing one of the com key components of lat motion and pec motion like that mm -hmm. whole translation of the humerus, right? So, for instance, you wouldn't you wouldn't train your pecs by doing the opposite motion, right? You wouldn't yeah. do a you know a pull up in front exercise to train the chest. You would do you because you want to you want to press it. So, same thing. Okay. So, okay, does it work with decline presses as well? So, like, okay, this is how I would decline press, then something like this for the lats could work as well. <laughs> so, so think of what we just talked about lats, and let's look at what that would mean for pecs, right? So if the lats use the rib cage, 
the pecs also use the rib cage, right? And so by bringing the arm into this like abducted, this horizontal position, I'm essentially taking these fibers away from the rib cage and I'm actually decreasing their potential to push forward, right? But yeah. down here, when they're around the rib cage, like these guys, my pecs are lined up more facing that way when they get to use the rib cage versus out here, they're more facing this way, right? Mm -hmm. So. You're, so if you were doing a decline press, it would actually look more like a dip motion if we were doing that properly than it would a barbell press, right? So, and that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the biggest issues I think with a lot of the, you know, with the research on pecs is they'll compare three exercises and they're all in abduction. So they're kind of comparing three bad movements to each other and then trying to sell, tell us something good about uh, pec function. Right? Mm -hmm. So basically for pecs, you're going to have an arm path that's close to the body, just like you will for the lats. So basically like doing the, the motion, like doing a, a cable press down like this, that would be a really poor way of loading these pecs. You would want it to be like this, right? So if we bring Wade back in here and you see these pec fibers here, right? So as these guys come around, like this guy is pointed straight there. So it's really good at handling load. If I start bringing him out here, right? Now these guys, like especially the top two, have almost no ability, like they have no leverage to do any sort of pressing forward, right? They're kind of just pulling the joint in together. So we actually, so basically as we start to come out more, the thing that doesn't lose its mechanical advantage is the deltoid. So, we, so basically we see more anterior delt here or here, doesn't matter, but the closer we get to the ribs, and it's not, I don't want to say closest, but the closer we get into this pec plane, because it's not like arms, like you're not like holding your arm against your side. There's kind of like this, this position where if you think of like, if I was going around a circle, this is kind of how like the arm would kind of roll around that. But in these position, these guys have a, a moment for uh, flexing the shoulder. These guys do, these guys do. Like all of these guys are good. If I start pulling up here, well, this is now more of an adductor, and these guys have a very poor ability to flex the mm -hmm. humor. So it's like, we're basically making all of them worse at any job that we would want to do for the pec. So, but if you're just looking at it at 2D, like you're looking at a flat picture and you look at this way, you're like, oh, look, this fiber goes that way and that's the way the arm goes in, yeah. right? But that's the problem of looking at it in 2D because then when you look at it this way, it's like, oh no, that, that, really, that really sucks for pushing yeah. that way versus here, it's like, wow, that's really good for pushing yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, so. No, no it does. Um, so the pec motions and the lat motions are gonna be, like they're gonna be still, they would all end in, right? And they would, so basically what we use is what we call press and pull arounds now. Um, so it's like the position where your arms are close to this, your sides is more sagittal. And then as you get in the front of the body, it becomes more adduction or abduction, depending on whether it's a press or a pull. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's uh, super interesting. I, I, I need to, I need to um, open up my mind uh, to to these concepts a little bit more because uh, it's certainly more more complex than the way uh, I was going about it so far. Um, so, do we do we still have time to talk about the controversy of incline pressing or not incline pressing for the upper packs? Because like that's that's uh, sure. besides the CDCC squats and the dips, I think that that was uh, causing the most controversy. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so 
so let's let, let's let's look at the the rationale for so Doug says that you know in order for the arm to be pulled above the shoulder line that you would have to have muscle fibers that like attach to your face or something like that is yeah, kind of yeah. or your chin chin or whatever it is chin. right um, so this is the, the again there's there's, there's going to be some agree, agree and disagree in here right and that the optimal position to shorten the clavicular head of the pecs is not going to be way above the shoulder line but it's also incorrect biomechanics to say that a muscle can't pull an arm past its origin otherwise we would not be able to lift the arm at all like none of none of the things that attach to the humerus attach to your chin like our and our deltoids attach to the clavicle just like the clavicular pecs like they don't attach any higher but we can lift the arm up because there's a joint in here right and that joint exists lower than the origin so that means as i go start to pull up here basically those fibers go from pulling up to like they're, they're starting to it'd be like think of it this way it's like imagine that there was a pole laying on the ground and you were standing on one end and the you know you had a rope tied at the far end if you started pulling that right you would be able to pull the pole higher than you right because the pivot point would be lower it would be where your feet are Right, so same thing here. So to say that the, the clavicular pecs can't do anything when the arm is up is false, but I would also say that the best way to train them is, act, is not going to be over that, but it's gonna be with this high amount of adduction, right? So th that logic or the, the positioning holds true provided we bring the arm across the body. Right. But out here, if we keep the arm out here, if we we're doing a barbell press or something like here, then you'll actually see that as the arm comes up here, that the clavicular pecs still participate a little bit. Right. That doesn't mean that's an optimal, optimal exercise, but like from a, just so that people are clear on the biomechanics perspective is like you, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a rule. Um, so if we're looking at what should we use incline for clavicular pecs? We have to consider is, well, what benefit is there to using the incline versus any other motion? And the benefit is not gonna be that your arms go higher. The benefit is gonna be that it's better actually in the rest of the range. So if you imagine this guy doing an incline press, right? So these lower, we're, going, we're going in that direction. So if we're thinking we're taking the arm that way, these guys, the costal fibers, right? Once they get here, like that arm is essentially kind of done, right? Do I need to move him up so you can see a little bit better? Oh yeah, maybe a little bit further. There we go. Oh yeah. Yeah, that, right. So, so in terms of my costal pecs, at this point, they would no longer really lift the arm, right? Because they'd be wanting to pull this way, right? At this point, my sternal pecs would just want to pull across, right? But my clavicular pecs, right? They still have an upward vector until I get like all the way to here, right? So be, loading an incline is going to increase not only how much advantage these fibers have over the other ones, but how much of the range of motion they're being biased in, right? So if I choose, because if I'm correct, Doug's basically says like the only press that you need to do is this downward motion, right? So so, but that goes here, but basically it's like these guys in that position all would be pulling the humerus up, right? So these guys would be pulling up and really across. These what guys, the clavicular pecs would be pulling 
more up, less across. So that motion there is very costal pec biased, right? And I'd argue it would still be better with the arm close to the body. But in order to actually load these guys, we would actually want to load a vector that was more opposite of their mechanics, right? So if I wanted to load the costal pecs, I'm gonna have something that I have to push from high to low. If I wanna load the sternal pecs, I want something that I have to push more horizontal. If I wanna load the clavicular pecs, I want something that I have to push more low to high, but that doesn't mean that I have to move the arm up here to like, so basically you could say it's like, well, I could use either a lower incline or I could use an incline, but not, not use the full range of motion, but I would still have better loading for those, right? So I could, I could be in an incline and be like, all right, but I'm just pressing to here. I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go all the way up. I'm just gonna stay where the pec is you know, the most biased. But if I wanted to make it really, really good, what I would do is I would have a motion where is, as I came through is I could also bring the arm across, right? So that's where we're getting more of this insertion to origin thing is, is we, need, we need to have motions that as we go through, we can continue moving in the direction of those muscle fibers as, as their orientation is changing, right? So here, they're all good shoulder flexors, all of them right? But one has a little bit more downward pull, one has a little bit more forward pull, one has a little bit more upward pull. So just by changing the resistance here, I could bias this. And then, you know, depending on where, where that end point is that I'm trying to get to the arm, the fibers that are closest to where I'm trying to push the arm to are going to be the ones that are biased, right? So if I'm thinking about pushing down, my brain's going to be like, well, I'm not going to use the guys that pull up. I'm going to use the guys to push down. But if I'm thinking about pushing up, your brain's going to be like, well, I'm going to use the guys that are going to take me all the way to my destination. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so there is benefit to an incline, right? But it's not too much of an incline, and to maximally get the to get the maximal benefit out of it, you would want to have it be also something that you could bring across. Yeah. So I would say, you know, if you're if you're limited to free weight presses, you're if you do if you choose to do inclines, you don't need to necessarily go overhead. But. And not to make things too nuanced, but to provide some nuance, mm -hmm. you could also look at the fact of like, look, if you press the dumbbells and you go, you go higher than what the clavicular pecs do, but the clavicular pecs did a lot of the work in the bottom two-thirds or three-fourths of the range of motion, and then at the top you, you use some front delt. That doesn't necessarily mean that the clavicular pecs are not benefiting from that. That just means that there's something else that's getting added to that equation for what's being accomplished in that whole motion. So the question is, do you need to make your pec press so biased that it's no anterior deltoid? Mm. Or is that little bit of anterior deltoid fine? Or is it even beneficial for the goal? Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because you can we can train any movement just to one, be good at the movement, right? Or we can train a movement that works multiple muscles because we want to stimulate those muscles. We just need to be cognizant of how, how much work it is for those relative things, because then we might say, well, the thing that didn't get that much, I'll add an exercise and another exercise for, right? Or I'll limit the range of motion or, you know, do pauses in the bottom. Like there's lots of ways that we can, then we can use the, the, the training variables, you know, such as, you know, tempo, exercise selection, exercise order, supersets, pre-exhaust, post-exhaust. We can use all of those things to start kind of evening that stimulus out to wherever we want it to be rather than just being like, well, all I have is this, you know, machine or this exercise or whatever. I guess I just won't train because it's not the perfect thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, so. So would it be a, a accurate to say that if, if someone had access to all kinds of a, a equipment, sort of the order would go, it would be cables, then dumbbells, then barbells. 
would would that be sort of like the order because like I guess with the cable you have the most potential to create that like a cross type motion and with the dumbbells a little bit less I mean I mean much less but still somewhat and with the barbell the least yeah if we're looking at doing the most biased motions in terms of specific muscle divisions the cable gives you the most control over that and it allows you to train more in an arc right meaning that I, I can literally have something where i can be pushing and then i can be pulling it across my body and you know so that's going to be the most superior dumbbells you have freedom of movement because you can change their width and whatnot and their position and your grip orientation so they give you more freedom than a barbell right but so i would say okay dumbbells are not as good as cables in terms of being able to pick the specific path of motion um then barbells are the least but also machines fit in there somewhere and it depends on the quality of the machine so a machine say that goes from wider to narrower may mm -hmm. if it's a if it's a good path may be better than the dumbbell right or if it's yeah. a crappier path may be worse than the dumbbell so you just got to figure out like all right you know if this machine allows me to move a little bit more closer to the motion that i'm trying to get in terms of the muscles anatomy like that's similar to what i would do with the cable then the machine might be better than the dumbbell right yeah but if it's not then the dumbbell might be better than than the machine and the barbell of course because you're you have a fixed pronated grip or whatever so you could argue that like well if you had a you know a swiss bar or something that that would then be better than the just the regular plain dumbbell but not as good as dumbbell so it all exists on yeah. a continuum right yeah yeah um so so i think like we, we pretty much went over all the doug stuff um but but let me know if you have any additional stuff um there was one thing i wanted to ask you and that is, like you mentioned, some of the things that make for a good exercises and, and, and amongst those were um, loadability and stability. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you about is sometimes when I look at the lifts that you're posting about, that's actually one thing I, I was wondering about, like uh, some of the pull down variations and also some of the presses that I sometimes see you do, like you're, you're kind of standing and then you're pressing. Now I understand why, like you're, you're basically pressing across your body. Um, Sometimes I'm wondering, like, isn't that like too unstable, basically to the point where you're you're uh, losing out on the loadability with some of the pull downs too, when you're just like kind of half kneeling. Um, are those just some variants of those lifts that someone could do if they don't have the proper equipment or that's how it's designed to be done? Yeah. So the running joke is that I have like 73 versions of like the unilateral pull down now, like posted on mm -hmm. Instagram or whatever. Right. And that's exactly what that is, is, is like, okay, like if I'm in a different gym or I walk in and somebody is using a different piece of equipment or whatever, it's like, okay, this is an opportunity for me to film how I would do this if I didn't have access to that other thing or whatever, right? So we have basically the variations where it's like, all right, you're doing it with one arm, but your other arm is able to grab something very stable. So you're like, you're, you're very stable. Like on a, if I'm using, for instance, the functional trainer that has the moving arms, like the, like the prime or the Nautilus, I can set that other arm to be a handle exactly where I would want it. So I'm perfectly stable doing that unilateral exercise. But if I'm in like a traditional functional trainer with just two vertical arms, then it's a little bit more of a challenge because, you know, I can grab the pole, but I can't set, I can't decide how far apart those, those support columns are. Right. So, so I have to manipulate that a little bit differently. Right. If I'm doing a pull down, um, and I have the other arm, great. If I don't, I could use a bench, you know, either there's a chest support or an arm support, and that would be good. If I can't use the bench, then maybe I bring a heavy dumbbell and I put it on my opposite thigh to give me a little bit more stability of the, uh, from the vertical loading or whatever. So really it's, it's like, all right, you know, the motion that you want to 
do. So then the question is, is like, how do I find the best stability to be able to do that motion? Right. And depending mm -hmm. on what you have, you may like this is why you have to take everything into context, because sometimes you might do a less than perfect motion because you don't have a stable enough way to do it. Right. And yeah. so you might use a less perfect motion that is more stable. Right. Or that might be the how you use complementary exercises. So, for instance, you know, right now we don't have a lot of machines. We're still waiting on most of our upper body machines here at the HQ. Uh, so. I, I do the press arounds because that gives me a ton of range of motion and allows me to challenge, you know, the, a shorter position than I could with uh, any of the free weights. So I get more range of motion. I get a specific portion of the range of motion and it's very good path of motion. So I know I'm getting, I'm biasing the division I want. Um, but I do know that like in terms of like challenging the very most lengthened portion that those exercises aren't the best. So I supplement that with a press. Right. So mm -hmm. then it's like, okay, so I do both dumbbell presses and cable press arounds because they are very complementary. Because the dumbbell press is pretty much, you know, it really overloads the lengthened position, right? And it's really good there, but it becomes increasingly less good as I get towards the top of a dumbbell press. And that doesn't matter if it's a decline or an incline. All of them, because I can't pull the dumbbell across my body, it gives me no load to pull it, you know, across my body. All of them become less specific to the pecs the further I get into the press. So their value is they're really good and they're more biased to the pecs in the bottom position. And so I make sure I, I press arounds, I focus up really on maximizing the other position. And then I basically have trained that muscle very well through its full range of motion. And then those two things have, have complemented each other. Same thing for, you know, with back, right? So like with, when we're looking at lats, the pull around exercises are really good at lengthening the lats, but you might in some of them, like for instance, if I'm doing something that's where I'm basically reaching almost in front of my other shoulder to really stretch this and I got a cable here, as I start to pull, like there's no way I can get my arm all the way around here without that cable either, you know, making me fight rotation or actually pulling into the body. So I may have yeah. to choose an exercise that I can pull in this way and an exercise that pulls me over this way if I wanted to challenge that muscle through its whole range of motion, right? And again, mm -hmm. This all comes down to the individual because there might be super beginners where it's, it's like, look, we don't, we don't need to train the muscle through its full range of motion. We just need to do something that targets that muscle good enough, right? Yeah. But as, as you advance, you need to train it through its fuller range of motion. You might need to go closer to the stretch position, right? You might need to have exercises that work the different divisions. Like that's kind of how you graduate as a trainee is, is that the specificity of your training should become better because that then allows you to drive that stimulus to that area more effectively, right? And, you know, to be able to be more predictive with your progressive overload and your programming, right? So if you have an exercise where it does a bunch of stuff, that's fine if you're a newbie and like, you're just like, you're just going up 10% and load like on squat yeah. bench and whatever, like it's like, okay, that's fine. Like you're in there, a bunch of things are getting stimulated, everything recovers, you get stronger. As you start to get advanced, you need to know like, hey, what is actually being challenged the most in this so that I know you know, what other exercise to fit in, how I, what, what type of progression I should be expecting or whatnot. And to know like, okay, well, if I'm actually getting stronger here, I know it's sternal pecs. So that means, you know, don't add more of this exercise or do add more volume of that specific, uh, exercise, et cetera. Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, so we, we are going to wrap up in, in like very shortly because I, I kept you up for a long time, but like just for the end, like, can I, like, there are a couple of exercises that are like, kind of like, um, 
known to be kind of controversial. So just like a very brief, like um, quick fire thing. Like I, I'm just going to say the exercise and just like a couple of thoughts on them. Uh, like, like, do you think they are like useful for which muscle groups can they be useful? Do you think they should be like ditched by most people that look for like, there are not just brand newbies for whom like anything will work. Uh, does okay. that work? Yeah. I have like three that I can think of right now, maybe four. So, uh, first thing is overhead press, dumbbell, barbell, uh, maybe cable. Uh, so people do it for shoulder development like that's there like uh, just a, a colloquial term maybe side delt would be the hope uh, some upper traps like what, what do you think about worth including it yeah for side delts the press is not is not a good exercise at all side delts just just do laterals right and for anterior delts i would do overhead press either i would use some sort of an incline press right so an overhead press would be what i would call is like that's more of a movement based goal rather than a muscular based goal mm -hmm. um bent over row bent over row if you have i mean if you have no means of supporting your chest then i guess that's all you have but i would choose a one-arm row over a bent over row right i mean that's one of those instances where like we don't have to sacrifice anything by taking that load and challenge off of the spine so like and let's say we're talking in the context of lats right but if you're trying to train your lats and your erectors by all means then do a bent over row. But if you're trying to train your lats to their fullest capacity, then pick something where you're, you're not loading the torso. So either do a, a row where you can be supported with your arm or have a chest support. Mm -hmm. um, hip hinges in general. So like Romanian deadlift, stiff like deadlift, uh, good mornings. Um, what do you think about those? Um, I mean, I think hip hinges are one of the most beneficial exercises that we can have in programs, but it's also one of the ones that people uh, mess up the most in terms of loading and technique, right? So an exercise like a hip hinge, especially with free weights, because you're moving the weight like far away from your body and there's a tendency to create that momentum or whatnot, like your, your room for error on technique and loading gets smaller when, we move, when we're moving something from a far axis. So for instance, the difference between a lateral raise and a bicep curl, a lateral raise the, the lever is much longer, right? So your ability to create momentum and your, the amount of momentum you have to resist on the eccentric is, is much greater. But the odds of you hurting yourself going too fast, you know, on the way down of a lateral raise is really small, but the odds of you compensating or tweaking something by going down too fast, too heavy on a hinge, that's a totally different scenario. So I think hinges are an extremely valuable tool, but I also think they're, you know, one of the ones where technique and load management becomes becomes important now on the scale of those i don't think good mornings really I, I mean we never use good mornings i just don't think there's a reason to do a good morning because all you're doing is just putting the load in a more uncomfortable disadvantageous position there's no benefit of doing the good morning over just holding you know a weight in your hands and doing an rdl or a stiff leg deadlift or whatnot um, it's just that because that resistance profile is so biased and it's a long arm that those are exercises where you know people need to manage their when they're loading right if they want to do them productively and there's also the strength prerequisite of if you've done a whole bunch of lower body exercises and you've been neglecting any spinal loading then it's very easy to be trying to push to fatigue and your erectors fail first or something like that you know and so you try and grid out some more motion some more reps with some poorer form because your legs have still got some gas in them but your back is done so it's one of those things where you have to take into account somebody's strength and this is where programming comes in it's like hey if somebody has been doing like no spinal loading they've been but they've been doing tons of leg presses and tons of leg curls and things like that 
what's going to be the weak link in their chain. And so this, so they might have to start loading the spine in a, in a, we'll say a way that isn't stimulatory to the legs until their erectors and their stability is strong enough that then they can now not be the limiter. And then they could use those exercises for their lower body. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and do you think, so if someone has like a good leg curl machine, uh, that is hitting it at long muscle lengths, like a good seated leg curl, do you think hip hinges are going to be adding something to their like hamstring stimulus? Like if you're just look at the hamstrings that otherwise they would be missing out on. Yes. Yeah, so the hamstrings are a little bit more uh, specialized than say like the biceps. So the biceps, I would say like, we don't really need to train them as shoulder flexors. We just need to position them so that we can, you know, target the muscle through a greater range of motion. Whereas the hamstrings, we see more separation of function because they have a greater mechanical advantage at, for hip extension, uh, some of them than the other. So if you look at, it's like, okay, the, the, let's say the bicep femoris you have the short head that doesn't cross the hip right and so it on the lateral side of the hip it's your dedicated knee flexor right and then its larger division goes up but that division does attach to the posterior side of the pelvis which means mm -hmm. that as you bend over it actually gets it becomes mechanically a much better hip extensor than it does a knee flexor right and so the same thing with the medial side you have the semitendinosus which attaches further down the leg which means that as you knee flex it gets better leverage than the membranosus that attaches further up. So it's got a essentially greater mechanical advantage. The tendinosus has a greater mechanical advantage as a knee flexor, but the membranosus has a little bit more shift towards a hip extensor. So when we're looking at that, we would expect to see that like, well, okay, if I load hip extension, I'm gonna get a slightly different bias in terms of which hamstrings are doing that load versus the knee flexion exercises. Right. Mm -hmm. So in that instance, I do think it is important to train both the hip extension and the knee flexion qualities. And then let's not also forget that, you know, muscles like the adductor magnus and the glutes will also benefit from those. Right. Now, if we were to do specific hamstring like hip extension, it would have to be weird hip angles. And that's where we just our ability to train lower body movements is not the same as upper body movements because we just don't have the ability to like do hip extension and like weird angles with a lot of stability. Cause we don't, we can't just like grab a cable with our feet and be locked into a, you know, a machine yeah. or a bench and do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, basically th those were the three that I wanted to ask. I mean, th there are more, but those are like not, not, not as interesting, but I think those, those three in particular are, are those that like some, sometimes I see, uh, dividing people a little bit more. Um, but yeah, Kasim, this was, uh, this was super, super informative. Um, I, I felt at times like interviewing someone at other times, I was like, uh, taking a, a lecture for, for free, which was, uh, like a really high quality lecture. So it was incredibly informative. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this and sharing everything. Like, um, yeah, I think it's going to be really well received and, uh, definitely going to re-listen to it a few times myself um so yeah just really really appreciate you doing this yeah thank thank you for having me i think our people are gonna love this too because we've been getting we've been getting a lot of comments and questions on on the, on this topic well and i think it's always better, better be better to receive in a conversation like this rather than you know just me making a post on you know other people's stuff yeah yeah definitely so yeah just just let pe please let people know who might not know where to find you where can they find you? 
Yep. Uh, so you can find us uh, on Instagram. So you can find me. It's coach underscore Kassem, K-A-S-S-E-M. Um, and then we also have two other platforms, N1 Education and N1 Training. If you're interested in taking courses from us, that's N1 Education. If you're interested in like seeing programs or seeing our exercise library, that's N1 Training. And we are just now pumping the YouTube thing. So if you want to come over and support us there, uh, we've been putting up like a video every day or every other day. So hopefully we can get this YouTube thing going and I can be as cool as Abel. <laughs> yeah, uh, it would be sad if you were only as cool <laughs> if you started making making a lot of videos. Um, there is a lot more potential there. But uh, yeah, thanks so much once again, Kasim. And um yeah, uh, keep up the great work.